National Review is the worst. They have a lot, a lot of automatically playing things. <sighs> Just like pop up ad after pop up ad. Yes, and then if you scroll, to uh, the bo- it's impossible. If you scroll to the bottom. It has some of the worst of those kind of like total clickbait glurgy ads. Yeah, that are like a bunch yeah. of like, like photos like, of, of like weird wounds and stuff. Or, or like um, this childhood actor. You won't believe what he looks like now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. She was voted the most beautiful woman of 1987. You'll never believe what she looks like now. <laughs> You'd think with all the right wing money. That's right. That's what. That's uh, what I'm thinking. Because they have to be. They're they're trying to bring in a lot more ad revenue than most liberal websites. Oh yeah, like Descent's website isn't like that. The Nations isn't. Commonweals isn't. No. Jacobin isn't. No, 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 no. I mean, it's just like if you're in the conservative world, like you just gotta grift. You just gotta. Like, there's uh-huh. nothing to be gained from like being seeming more serious <laughs> above the grift. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I have to imagine that like the same people who buy brain pills from Glenn Beck or Ben Shapiro, like also click on the ads that say, here's the way you can clean your bow every morning. Like there's some overlap between the, you know, this one trick means you can empty your bow every morning. Like some overlap between people who buy sawdust pills from Glenn Beck and people who click on the ad on National Review that says, here's how I can shit every morning. I mean, it's also, I mean, honestly, it is just that they're older too. Well, exactly. That's what I mean. There's, I think there's something generationally at work too. Uh, <laughs> this is this is great uh, stuff for the podcast. <laughs> well, let's start formally. All right, know your enemy, listeners. I'm Matt Sitman, one of your podcast co-hosts, and I'm here with my friend Sam Adler Bell for. A bonus episode. That's right. Patreon only, baby. For your <laughs> ears right. only. You gotta pay for this. Well, what are we going to talk about today, Sam? What's the topic for this bonus episode? Well, as has preoccupied a lot of people in both left and right media recently, we're going to be talking about voting rights. That's and right. In particular, you'll not be surprised to hear about the right wing assault on those voting rights that continues, uh, has become incredibly uh reaching a higher and higher pitch um yes which uh i think i think can be explained (laughs) but you know like to begin with one way to think about this is that like you know when the democrats lost the election in 2016 there was like a massive kind of inward looking you know soul searching thing Mm -hmm. of like what's wrong with the party what's wrong with our message how do we win more people the kind of situation where the term post-mortem is used Right. Yes. Something is dead. <laughs> and why did <laughs> right. it die? And uh-huh. how do we and how do we reach these good old middle American voters who we lost to Trump, the Obama Trump voters uh-huh. or whatever it yeah. was? There was endless amount of sometimes overly navel gazing, soul searching about what yeah. the future of the Democratic Party ought to be. And you know what the you know what the Republicans have done is <laughs> none of that. Yes. And instead, in classic in in sort of Brechtian fashion, instead of trying to fix themselves, they elect to elect a new populace, a new voting population. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, better to create the voters that you want instead of figuring out a way to win the ones you haven't won before. I know. Commonweal about two years ago when we uh, revamped the print magazine we added this like short comment section at the start where the editors will write short kind of opinion pieces about things and a few weeks ago i did one on voting rights and uh (laughs) that was my lead sam i said after losing a presidential election political parties typically engage in a certain amount of reflection over what went wrong (laughs) uh but not the republicans (laughs) they've really leaned into voter suppression but as sam pointed out I mean, what we want to do is break it down into a few constitutive parts here, because there is, in fact, the actual legislation moving across state legislatures throughout the country, some of which have been passed already, like the bill in Georgia. Others have not yet been passed. Um, So I think part of the discourse on this is sort of a confusion about some of the things that were proposed, some of the things that then were actually passed, not all of which were always as dreadful as some of what could have happened. 
And then, you know, bills that are still making their way through state legislatures around the country. So there's like the factual things of what actually have been proposed and what have been passed. And there's the reasoning behind it, which we'll get to it. But I mean, the short version is it's because they think Trump had a landslide election stolen. Like there are quotes from state legislatures flat out saying that's why they're doing this. And one of the sort of deranged aspects of this is, I mean, it totally makes sense why Republicans would do this in Georgia, right? They barely beat Stacey Abrams, the governor, Brian Kemp. Right. He was the secretary of state and like used that position to throw people off the voting rolls. And he still barely won. It was a fairly close election. Right. Biden pulled out Georgia in the presidential election. And then, of course, both John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock won the special elections there in January. So it's pretty clear why it's happening in Georgia. But it's also like there was a um, the New York Times did a report. They said that like people in Iowa state legislatures were backing more restrictive voting laws, even though Trump won that state handily. Republicans control the state. But one of the state legislators that the New York Times interviewed flat out said me and a lot of my constituents and like people in my caucus believe that Trump had the presidential election stolen from him. So in the name of election security and integrity, they're undertaking these measures. So that's another part of it. But then as Sam, as as you gestured at, it's kind of turned into then this culture war madness. Yeah. Especially on the heels of Major League Baseball pulling the All-Star game from Atlanta being hosted there. And Biden kind of gave his blessing to that. And it's just, it's just turned into this massive culture war flare-up that's incredibly vexing to follow and pay any attention to at all. Yeah. And you, you alluded to this, but there's a dimension of it, which is that conservatives are now saying that, you know, the way that Biden talked about the Georgia law or other people have talked about it as like the reinvigoration of Jim Crow is like way overstating the case. And um, it's not really as bad as you're saying. But (laughs) what's ironic about it is that like the basis for the things that people are saying, the worst things people are saying, and even in the cases where Mm -hmm. they might be wrong factually, like what actually ended up in the Georgia bill is not as bad as things that people had considered in the past. Those are things that are passing in other states. And they are things that the conservatives want to do. <laughs> right. You know, so it's not it's the idea of like, oh, you guys are being so crazy. You're being hysterical. Of course, we wouldn't do X or Y thing to like actually cut all these people off the voting rolls or make it this much harder to vote or do this or that or that. Mm-hmm. But it's like, no, you would do it if you could. That's what you want to do. <laughs> and so the idea that it's like, oh, you're accusing us of being racist vote suppressors is so crazy, even though like given free reign, that's precisely what they would do. Yes. And as we get into this, one thing I think we want to do is connect it to some of our previous episodes, especially our our early episode on the illiberal right. And, you know, some of what we talked about more recently, kind of uh, in January, right after the insurrection, but kind of the anti-democratic thrust of the right and the Republican Party in general these past few years. I mean, it has deep roots in conservative history, but I think it's fair to say, like, they've come out now kind of more explicitly yeah. it's it's more right there than i think it's been for a while i mean we know republicans at the state level they've always been more savvy at least in a self-interested sense than the democrats in using yeah. using their power at the state level which they've gained you know massive amounts of in recent recent years basically during the obama years yeah, especially the famous statistics about the the kind of wipeout of the obama years at the state level you know so they've been things like gerrymandering and just kind of giving themselves those kinds of advantages. But the voting rights stuff has taken on new urgency precisely because of Trump's loss and the lie that he fed in the wake of it. Um, That's kind of the excuse they're being given. And it was really telling. November, the election happens. In the weeks that followed, Trump goes all in on the lie that he had a landslide election stolen. There was massive amounts of fraud. January 6th happens. And then really, it's in February when state legislatures convened, when new legislative sessions started, that you had hundreds of various bills and provisions being pushed in state legislatures in like, not every single state, but 40 plus states. And as we go through this, you know, the Brennan Center is really good on voting rights. I'll be drawing a lot from their reports on all this. They track all this. And then certain reporters like Ari Berman at uh, Mother Jones cover this regularly, too. Yes. So there's people on this beat that you should be reading. And I wanted to mention them at the start, and we'll link to some of their work in the show notes. Yeah. Well, why don't we, why don't we talk about what's in some of these bills? So we have that 
as grist sure. for um, kind of the larger theoretical and historical conversation we might have. Well, as I mentioned, as of like mid to late February, even early March, some of these bills had been proposed and were being debated. And in a few of the states, most famously Georgia, they've now been passed. So the Georgia bill, since it's received so much scrutiny um, and is the subject of so much controversy, maybe we should start there. Sure. Early on, before the bill was passed, there were things in play in Georgia like uh, Sunday voting, uh, which is a major element in African-American turnout, right? Because it's kind mm-hmm. of like you go from the church to the polling place, there might be buses. It's kind of like coordinated, right? So Sunday voting yeah. was a, is a big deal in Georgia, especially in places in the South with significant uh, numbers of black churches. And that was kind of something that was on the chopping block, but ended up not being actually eliminated. One of the ones that people talked about a lot is the stuff about whether you can feed or give water to people who are standing in long voting lines. Right. And that was something that did pass. You can't hand out food or water. Yeah. Not just to any voter within like a hundred or someone in line within 150 feet of the polling place, for example, but to any, you can't get within 25 feet of any voter to give them food or water. And, yeah. and only, I think, like certified election workers, there's like a way they can give water to people standing in line. But just the idea that like volunteers could go up to someone and give them water or food while they're standing in line, which, of course, the voting laws <laughs> make standing in line a necessity in a lot yes. of places, especially, you know. Uh, places where minorities are especially prevalent. Yeah. That is a factor in the bill. Well, what's so funny is like that when there was all this controversy, I remember on the right about uh, like the idea that liberals were being hysterical about not being able to feed people in lines that were like, look, like official election workers can do this or that. People aren't going to die of thirst while waiting in line. The, the funny thing is that like no one was denying that there were lines. There's huge lines. Uh In fact, Ben Shapiro did a tweet where he was like, uh, or he did it on his show. He was like, I don't know why people think lines for voting is voter disenfranchisement. If you go to Disneyland and there's a long line, are you disenfranchised from being able to go on the line, go on the (laughs) ride? No, you're not. (laughs) Which is a ridiculous comparison, but also doesn't help his cause at all because often you go to an amusement park and choose not to go on a ride because the line is too long. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And no one looks at the line waiting in line process at amusement parks as like the fun part of going, right? Or, or, or not as something that is inhibiting. Right. Exactly. So here's what the Georgia bill did do. We can talk about some of the nuances because Biden's made some comments on this that have been fact-checked. And the way I saw the right react to it was like, oh, Biden's just lying through his teeth. And the statements I found that have been fact-checked is he got, like, one part of how early voting was changed wrong. <laughs> like, it was... Mm-hmm. I, I, I was yeah. expecting some, like, really over-the-top mistake. You know, like a key provision of the law that he got yeah. really wrong. But he didn't. But here's what it did do. And this comes from the New York Times. They actually have an annotated account of this bill that actually passed, the Georgia voting law. And there's at least 16 provisions they identified that make it harder to vote. For example, voters will now have less time to request absentee ballots. There are strict new ID requirements for absentee ballots, meaning they can't be verified with a signature anymore, but you Mm -hmm. might either have to provide some kind of identification number, like a social security number, or provide a photocopy of like a driver's license or a similar document when you turn in your ballot, Uh an absentee ballot. It is illegal for election officials to mail out absentee ballot ap- applications to all voters because you know there were there's discretion for local election officials in all these cases so that you know it was possible in certain places for absentee ballot applications to just be sent out to all the voters in that area drop boxes barely still exist and that one was tricky because previously Georgia didn't have drop boxes for ballots before the pandemic so they introduced right. drop boxes during the pandemic and this This is where it gets tricky. So it took a situation where drop boxes were not written into the law before. They were an emergency measure. And it did write them in to voting law now. Like drop boxes now have this kind of formal place in the system that they didn't before. But there's very, very few of them, especially in, you know, like say Fulton County, like a place with a ton of people, including a ton of African-American people. Right. It limits the number of drop boxes. So even though in some sense that's a gain, it actually 
is quite limited in comparison to how many drop boxes were part of the emergency measures for the pandemic. Right. Mobile voting centers are essentially banned. Early voting is expanded in small counties, but not in the more populous ones, because that was one where local election officials had discretion. So it's, again, a situation where certain things are clarified in the law, including something's gained, but it may have been less than what the discretion of local election officials uh, had previously allowed. Uh, We mentioned the offering of food or water is now you risk a misdemeanor charge if you hand out food or water. I just want to say, too, as a Christian, like... (laughs) <laughs> you know, like there are these feed the poor, give drink yeah. to the thirsty, visit the widow, befriend the those in jail. Like it's one of the big ones, food, water to people who need it. I would just say as a person with a body, um, I <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> often need need to be given water when I'm standing out in the Georgia heat. Yes. No, exactly. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian to think you should give food and water to people who need it. But yeah, but given the given the uh, way some of these people get on their high horse as very, very right. public Christians, it you know is quite vexing to me. Totally. If you go to the wrong polling place, it's harder to vote. Um, they basically will give you directions to where you should go rather than let you cast in a provisional ballot if it's before 5 p.m. And you know there are a few other aspects of the law that we don't necessarily have to get into, except, and this is the really Im- maybe even the more important part, because even when restrictive, like as we saw in the 2020 election, you know, like if you work hard enough, you can get a lot of people out to vote, even if it's tough to do so, right? Yeah. But I think very tellingly, some of the other key provisions of this bill in Georgia is basically who will run the state election board. Right. So now the Republican-controlled legislature has more control over the state election board, and they can't replace like state election officials in, say, every county. But they can, I think up to four counties, they can essentially send in their own people if they think something's gone wrong or you know, whatever the, the excuse is. You know, if they deem it necessary mm-hmm. to send in their own people, they can replace election officials, which is to say, if these, this law had been in place a few months ago when Trump was trying to get the Georgia Secretary of State to overturn the election results and give him Georgia's electoral college votes, they might have been able to pull it off. I mean, because one of the things yeah. they do is strip the Secretary of State of his, the power he had this last election. So it's like really right. obvious. The guy who stood up to Trump, that position, they stripped it of all power in this area and gave it to yeah. the Republican-controlled yeah. state legislature. So they're basically, right. you know, in some ways, that's the more important part. I want to be careful how I say that, but it's just because like even if you could overcome the hurdles to voting, which is possible, this basically is laying the groundwork for state Republicans to overturn an election if they want to. That's right. how I read it anyway. Yeah, and like, again, like, Besides the sort of idea that uh, Biden and others were overstating how bad the law was, which we've already addressed as being pretty stupid and bad faith, there's also this idea that like, well, it just returns to the status quo pre the pandemic. The pandemic, we created all these emergency measures to make it easier for people to vote given uh, the hard circumstances and safety measures and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And we're just going back to the norm, which first of all, from what you're saying is clearly not the case. They're taking power. They're, they're, They're changing how it's overseen and they're doing so in ways that will privilege Republican mm-hmm. um, officials, Republican, the Republican Party in general. But even if it were true, you know, I mean, <laughs> this is like we get into these debates about like the specifics, which I don't think anyone should get the specifics wrong. It's important to get them right. Mm-hmm. Um, I resent when people do get them wrong because it's bad for the cause. Right. But it's also just like, OK, one party agitated to make it easier for people to vote. And an enormous number of people voted, not just Democrats, an enormous number of people Mm -hmm. voted in the last election. The idea that that's not just a good thing, you know, like that we should want to preserve whatever provisions we put into the law or emergency measures we implemented to make it easier for people to vote. Like rolling that back is un-American, like it's wrong, you know, like it was already too hard to vote. We made it slightly easier to vote. Getting bogged down in the details can sometimes, you know, we lose the forest for the trees, which is that like one party here wants it to be easier to vote, and the other party wants to make it harder. <laughs> and, you know, again, t- to, to be totally accurate, there are aspects of the Georgia bill that, especially in areas where it was vague before, 
say, uh, weekend voting or early weekday voting. Right, 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 right. Like, right. They lock in some stuff. They yeah. lock they lock in some stuff. That's I good. think that's the best language, yes. But it doesn't change the other parts of the bill, especially their ability to challenge elections. And, yeah. I, and I just have to say, you know, I would support voting laws that are help more people vote, regardless of partisan outcome. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if you're eligible to vote, it should be as easy as possible for you to vote in as many ways as possible for you to vote. Um, I don't know that that will always benefit, say, Democrats. It might not. And in fact, you know, one of the things that's been kind of hypothesized is that because there was some movement to the GOP in the 2020 election, at least toward Trump, in terms of African-American voters and Latino voters, Republicans may actually be harming themselves more than they realize. (laughs) Like, like, or, or even, you know, it's not always the easiest thing for poor whites to vote either, right? right? Like, rural areas. Yeah, rural areas, places where, you know, there might just be fewer places to vote. You might have to travel more. Or even if, you know, certain parts of the country, if you're poor enough, maybe your identification isn't in order or yeah. whatever yeah, it yeah. might be. Like certain things that make it harder for people of color to vote, there's some overlap with things that might affect poor white people too. So the GOP, it might not actually be the kind of electoral benefit uh, that they think it will be or that it seems they think it will be. But for me, I don't care what the precise political advantage, how that plays out. Well, you know, what's interesting about that is that there's a mingling in these conversations when it comes to the conservative ideology. On the one hand, it's completely just bad faith, backfill to try to change electoral outcomes to help Republicans running for office, in in particular Trump, you know, just like it doesn't matter, like throw any argument at the wall, whatever you can use to make it harder for black people, Democrats, young people to vote. And Mm -hmm. we'll do that. And and of course, like on that same tip, like during the time where Trump was doing the big lie, as people call mm-hmm. it, when he was saying that he, the election was stolen. Smart people, people uh, like Ari uh, Berman, you mentioned others, were saying, look, this might not work, but this is laying the groundwork for a massive voter suppression push across the country. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what we're seeing, right? Yes. Like all these Republicans have a base which is motivated to support laws like this and demand them even if they weren't planning to do them because they are convinced like there's an enormous percentage of Republican voters and in particular the most likely to vote voters who believe that the election was stolen. So of course, like mm-hmm. reining in illegal voting is a priority for them. So that's all working out. An interesting thing on the other hand, but not in a way that runs against those goals is that there's also a ideological thrust here wherein conservatives have always had a little more suspicion of voting as such. And Mm -hmm. you see that come out in certain places like the Kevin Williamson, Kevin D. Williamson wrote Mm -hmm. for the National Review on April 6th, a piece titled, Why Not Fewer Voters?, And in that, he said, you know, much of the discussion about proposed changes to voting laws backed by many Republicans and generally opposed by Democrats begs the question and simply asserts that having more people vote is a good thing. Why would we believe that? Why shouldn't we believe the opposite, that the republic would be better served by having fewer but better voters? (laughs) Right. And there are resources to rely on in conservative ideology to make this argument as a principled matter, not just as a strategic backfill combating fraudulent voting that doesn't exist. Like you can see this simultaneously as the mask slipping and also like people like Kevin D. Williamson, he wasn't a Trump supporter, right? Like he generally believes that like there are people who are worthy of the right to vote and there are people who are not. Right. You know, it's just, it's just, it, it, it's happening on both levels. The level of totally bad faith arguments about the prevalence of voter fraud, which doesn't exist in any appreciable way. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that conservatives, you know, they just don't really believe in mass democracy and they never have. <laughs> right. No, I think that's one of the key points here. I mean, the Georgia bill was one of the first that passed. So that's one reason we dug into it in some detail. We don't really need to go through I think, you know, state by state. 
especially in places yeah. where legislation is still pending and being debated. But I think the Georgia bill is pretty representative, and it's probably actually not as bad as it might be in some other places, like what some of the stuff that Texas is proposing, for example. Again, yeah. places where it seems like Democrats are making gains or on the cusp of maybe turning a state from red to blue or at least being newly competitive there. But again, also in places like Iowa that are a red state. And it's just yeah. it's just worth mentioning, too, that uh, even putting like kind of putting aside the question of voting access, other things are happening at the state level. Like my friend Luke Mayville, who ran the Reclaim Idaho campaign that got Medicaid expansion on the ballot there. After they succeeded in winning that statewide ballot, now the Idaho state legislature is making it much more difficult to get ballot initiatives going. Like the number of signatures or the way the signatures are proven, the burden became much heavier. So like hmm. that kind of, that's a dispute that's happening right now. I don't think it's settled yet. And in certain places too, like in Pennsylvania, they're trying to basically give Republicans new power to reshape the state Supreme Court. Yeah. You know, so at the state level, kind of across the board, whether it's ballot initiatives in Idaho or the courts in certain states like Pennsylvania, they are trying to lock in their party's rule. Right. So all those pressure points seem to be in play in state legislatures across the country. But, yeah. you know, as, as you're getting at, you know, this is conservative ideology. Um, the Kevin Williamson piece was just perfect. It was, yeah. it was a distillation of, I think, the kind of basic conservative position, to be honest. I don't know how many people explicitly would endorse it, but I mean, as someone who was on the right, that's the kind of thing you heard quite a bit. Right. I mean, it's basically one half a step away from literacy tests or some kind of property, yeah. property owning requirement to vote. I will say <laughs> our friend from the five to four podcast, Peter, the law boy, he had a great quote the other day. He said, well, maybe we should have a test to see if you're eligible to vote. Here's the question. Did Donald Trump have the 2020 election stolen from him? <laughs> if you answer yes, you're a fucking moron and you shouldn't be allowed to vote. Um, which, you know, I wouldn't endorse that necessarily, but I thought it was a funny, funny aside. And, you know, we I think we touched on this before talking about some of the anti the long seated anti democratic tendencies on the right. I mean, I was doing some research a few months ago and I came across a, a, a quote from Paul Weirich who right. helped found the Heritage Foundation, was an influential conservative activist, especially on the religious right. And in 1980, he said, flat out, as a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. Yeah. Right? And even uh, if you remember a few months ago, there was this really horrific Republican candidate for governor in Washington, this guy named Lauren Culp. He had the great quote, the problem with democracy... He says, you can look at quotes from famous Chinese leaders like Mao or Gorbachev. They love democracy <laughs> because democracy is a step towards socialism, which is a step towards communism. Mike Lee had the comment that we're a republic, not a democracy. You know, all that stuff is in the mix on the right. Yeah. Just, just a resistance to giving the mass of people the franchise and especially kind of sorting who the good voters are based on their education or status or skin color. Though... I think that one of the themes that we've identified here when we talk about the franchise and the uh, Republican or conservative attitude towards democracy as such, that there is that longstanding trend of sort of patrician, mm -hmm. anti-democratic impulses, often white supremacist, anti-democratic impulses, if we talked about multiple times, mm -hmm. the National Review, you know, sort of endorsing Jim Crow in the South, um, segregation, uh, the ability of the white minority to uh, wield political power, mm -hmm. even if they don't have numerical authority to do so. There's that tendency that's always been there in sort of what we understand as the post-war conservative movement. But as we've alluded to when we when we talked about the illiberal right and these forces that have become more prominent in recent years, and especially during the Trump years, there's a way where it's not a departure from that. It's probably an iteration upon it or, or a um, placing a new kind of emphasis on it. But I do find it interesting that you know, and just just to remind listeners in that episode, Matt's great line was, what are they giving themselves permission to do? If you're going to throw out the procedures of, you know, liberalism, procedural democracy, the ways that we adjudicate pluralistic disputes, um, <laughs> if you're going to throw all that out 
for what end, you know? And mm -hmm. uh, the conclusion that we came to was that for these far right conservatives, especially conservative Christians, the idea is like, if we can't win through liberalism, throw it out. Right. We'll do whatever it takes. We'll use the courts. We'll use the law to disenfranchise. We'll do whatever it takes to win. And of uh -huh. course, as we've argued, Trump's election strategy and his post-election strategy was a total vindication of that perspective. Um, <laughs> yes. But you're also seeing it play out in a very florid way in the surviving kind of Trumpist intellectual sphere. A piece that I know that a lot of our listeners wanted us to address was this piece by Glenn Elmer's in the American Mind, which is a Claremont Institute publication. So mm -hmm. as longtime uh, Patreon subscribers, <laughs> you will know your, uh -huh. your alarm is going off in your head. These are West Coast Straussians. And uh, the, the name of the piece was, quote unquote, conservatism is no longer enough. It came out on March 24th. The, the subhead is all hands on deck as we enter the counter-revolutionary moment. <laughs> yes. And the picture is like this stock image of like a muscly guy with hairy arms and a tank top wrapping his hands to do like bare knuckle boxing. <laughs> yes. Just, you know, just like the purest kind of like masculinist, fash-friendly id bullshit. But this article, it's not just arguing that certain people should vote, certain people shouldn't vote, the kind of National Review patrician argument that some people are worthy of voting, some people aren't. What, what this person explicitly argues is that people who did not vote for Trump are not Americans. Uh -huh. Basically, let me, let, me, let me read just a passage. He says, let's be blunt. The United States has become two nations occupying the same country. When pressed or in private, many would now agree. Fewer are willing to take the next step and accept that most people living in the United States today, listen to that, most people, certainly more than half, are not Americans in any meaningful sense of the term. He goes on to say that he's not just talking about illegal immigrants. He's not just talking about foreigners, though, of course, he's very concerned about them. He says, I'm really referring to the many native born people, some of whose families have been here since the Mayflower, who may <laughs> technically be citizens of the United States, but are no longer, if they ever were, Americans. They do not believe in, live by, or even like the principles, traditions, and ideals that until recently defined America as a nation and as a people. And here's the, the kicker. It is not obvious what we should call these citizen aliens, these non-American Americans, but they are something else. I bet I could come up with a couple terms he might use to describe <laughs> these uh, alien citizens or citizen aliens. Yeah, I can think of some too. Some, some, some that were hurled at my family various times. I mean, that's just incredible. I mean, because that's, that's pretty explicitly fascist. You know what I mean? Like the logic there of oh, an internal, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, th this yeah. is, there's not even like a, any kind of sheen on it to dress it up a little bit or make it look a little no. better. It's just flat out venomous, fascistic hate yeah. at anyone who stands in their way. Oh, yeah. And it gets worse and worse. But, it, you know, this is why, but this is what I think that it's worth sort of thinking about how this, mm -hmm. it's not just a continuation of the old no, um, right. anti-democratic impulse, which is inherent, I think, to the conservatism that right. pre-existed Trumpism and, mm -hmm. and even sort of the, the, the sort of traditions that he sort of relied on. I mean, this is identifying internal others. This is identifying, explicitly identifying people who are not deserving of rights, people who are being unhuman, you know, that are inhuman. Yes. I mean, I say inhuman. I mean, there's a moment he says in this piece, if you are a zombie or a human rodent who wants a shadow life of timid conformity, then put away this essay and go memorize the poetry of Amanda Gorman. She's the woman, the young right. black woman who spoke at the inauguration. Real men and women who love honor and beauty keep reading. So the, the people that he's talking about, like, are not just not Americans, regardless of whether they were born here. Mm -hmm. They are unhuman. They're zombies. They're human rodents. Yeah. And it, it's taking that idea to its, it might be its logical conclusion, which is that the people who are not with us, who do not share our ideological agenda, are not just our political opponents. They're not just wrong. They are uh, unworthy of inclusion in the body politic no i think that's a really smart point sam because there's there's a way in which like almost constitutive of conservative politics is a skepticism of mass democracy right and yeah even you know going back in history um when we did the i'm not sure if i mentioned this in the fascism episode but one of the books i i read part of for that is one by, by daniel 
Ziblet called Conservative Parties and the Birth of Democracy. And he ma- he's mainly looking at European political parties and their kind of response to mass democracy. And, you know, the thesis, well-informed listeners might have criticisms of it. But the basic idea is that for liberal democracy to work, you had to have conservative parties basically agree to that settlement, right? Like actually getting conservatives to sign on to democracy is one of the like hinge issues on whether the democracy works or not. Because if you have one of the major parties simply saying no to democracy, it's really hard to make that work. And that conservative tendency, especially when kind of refracted through American racial politics, you know, took a certain form in the United States. But I agree that that skepticism, in some ways there's continuities, but there's discontinuities. And I think there's a few things at play. You're right that this kind of, the explicitness of that argument that some people just aren't American on parts of the right. I mean, that's, if it's not totally new, it's it's fresh right now. Not just some people, most people, most right. people is the argument, that the, the maximalist argument that yes. Elmer's is making is that it's everyone who voted for Biden. Yes. Which is more people than voted for Trump. Right, yes. And no, he says explicitly, a majority of Americans are no longer Americans. Yes, I mean, and it's, you want to be careful how you put this, but like in some ways, when you look at Buckley's infamous National Review editorial, Why the South Must Prevail, that said whites should prevail politically, even if they don't prevail in certain places numerically. But there's a way in which you can kind of say, okay, that's Jim Crow racism, right? And it's directed towards a minority, which is horrible, but it's different than saying a majority of the United States simply is no longer worthy of almost their humanity, but certainly the full blessings of citizenship, Yeah, right? That is a move, right? It's a shift and it's a bad one. And I would say too, I think partly what's happening as well is this general conservative skepticism towards mass democracy, the kind of elitism you see in Kevin Williamson, or just that general... Republic, not a democracy type stuff. All that stuff. I think kind of what you're seeing too is the way that that perennial tendency is meeting like the demographic and structural forces at work in our politics. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. in other words, I think part of the incentive for Republicans to do this is because it is possible given our constitutional system and the way say, you know, rural urban divides have shaken out such that rural parts of the country, which are much less populous, um, you know, are very Republican. I think it just adds to the incentive that that actually this could be a viable strategy politically for them because they actually can hang on to power through the courts, in the Senate, but also through the Electoral College. I mean, everyone trots out this fact, but when you really stop and think about it, it is kind of amazing that only once since 1992 has a Republican presidential candidate won the popular vote. Once since 1992, and that was Bush in 2004. Yeah. Yeah. So they've been riding the kind of minority, and we know their power in the Senate, uh, even in the House sometimes, you know, they they typically have, are represented, you know, the, the 50 Republican senators in the Senate right now represent millions and millions fewer people than the 50 Democratic senators. Right. So I think it's partly that, too. Like the structural incentives have been at work in this latest turn as well. That's my Mm -hmm. sense anyway. It's kind of like, you know, a mix of the Trumpian authoritarianism and liberalism, the longstanding conservative aristocratic disdain for mass democracy and a skepticism, you know, who's actually informed enough to vote with then too the structural elements of our system and the kind of polarization along geographic urban rural divides, et cetera. Like all those things are in the mix. So it's, you might say it's overdetermined what's happening right now. (laughs) (laughs) We we, we won't rely on that word too much, although it's very useful. Um, Uh I totally agree. And I mean, I remember thinking back when we did our episodes on the illiberal right, and we kind of sketched this history where like the hard right social conservatives in the 90s were saying that the authoritarian liberals on the courts were undermining the will of the silent majority, right? Like that, that there was a majority of people in the country who were real 
um, blue-blooded Americans. A moral majority. Yeah, just the idea that like that a majority of people are with us and therefore our arguments will be about the undemocratic character of our enemies and that there was a turn that that you identified which was now in the very in the pages of the very same magazine that made those arguments in the 90s or in the aughts about the undemocratic character of the court system are now saying and we're talking about first things here are now saying no our goals are worthy of being achieved regardless of of whether majority of people are going to vote for them. And that was sort of implicit in the message of the illiberal right. You know, uh-huh. it was implicit in the message. And I remember thinking at the time, like, are we being unfair by saying that ultimately the end goal here is justifying minoritarian rule by, you know, a white subset of the population, white conservative Christian subset of the population? Are, are we being unfair by saying that's what they're giving themselves permission to justify? But Look, now they're just saying it, you know? Yes. This Glenn Elmer's article is saying, we are a minority and we deserve to rule. And not only do we deserve to rule, but the people who we rule, who we will rule over are not worthy of inclusion in the body politic at all. They're not citizens. They're not real Americans. Exactly. So, you know, that's kind of our stepping back and taking a look at some of the broader forces, some of what's going on, some teasing out some of the consequences of what we see happening on the right with these voter suppression bills. But one of the really telling things about what's happened is, you know, as these voting laws were proposed, and then in the case of Georgia passed, the rhetoric around it has been very heated, I think understandably so, including invoking the Jim Crow South. But because it's so heated, it's kind of turned the fallout from these voting laws into a major front in the culture war, precisely because in the case of Georgia, to take that example, Major League Baseball moved the All-Star game from Atlanta to Colorado. And Colorado actually is one of the states that it's quite easy to vote in. So one thing the, the right did was try to say that actually that wasn't the case, that there are, you know, restrictions in Colorado comparable to these new uh, laws in Georgia. But actually, I think Colorado has universal mail-in voting. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, in the case of, say, helping people by giving them water or food if they're standing in a long line to vote, uh, that doesn't apply to Colorado because those long lines simply don't exist. Yeah, You know, so they tried to do the both sides thing, but that was kind of batted down. But then as part of the moving of the All-Star game, they asked Biden about it, right? And he approved of that decision, but he got some of his facts wrong. And in particular, here's what he got wrong. Now, I want listeners to think about how the right reacted to Biden saying this in light of everything we know. And I want listeners to think about what Biden got wrong and how the right reacted to it. So here was Joe Biden's big transgression. Now, first of all, he should have gotten it right. You're the president of the United States. This is a major issue. You should have all your facts lined up. So I'm not covering for Biden, but in the grand scheme of things, this is what he got wrong. Biden said this in an interview he gave on ESPN earlier this month. He said, you're going to close a polling place at five o'clock when working people just get off. This is all about keeping working folks and ordinary folks that I grew up with from being able to vote. Daniel Dale, who listeners will recall, he was the guy who did those massive threads fact-checking Trump live during his uh, rally speeches. He writes now for CNN doing some fact-checking stuff, and this is what he said uh, Biden got wrong. Biden's statement was misleading for two reasons. First, the new law does not change Georgia's election day voting hours, which still end at 7 p.m. And second, while the law does set a default end time of 5 p.m. for early voting or weekdays and on Saturdays, counties were already allowed to end early voting at 5 p.m. under the previous law. The new law gives counties the option to offer early voting as late as 7 p.m. if they want to. That's what Biden got wrong. Wow, yeah. The ending time for voting hours in certain cases. Look, never has a president been more inaccurate with the American people or the press than that. I know. In my my lifetime, I have never heard so dishonest, Mm -hmm. recklessly dishonest a statement. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And you can kind of tell even by what I read, the new law is kind of complicated in Georgia. Like it takes certain things that were left to discretion and fleshes them out more particularly. It maybe sets more uniform standards in certain cases. So it's, it's kind of complicated. Biden still should have gotten it right, but that's what he got wrong. 
And yeah. I think what surprised me about it was before I actually heard Biden's statement and read what he actually got wrong, I was seeing reactions on the right that were acting like Biden was this pathological liar, just spreading gross falsehoods in order to divide Americans even further than he has already, you know, further yeah. betraying his inaugural claim to want to <laughs> unite and heal the nation. Yeah. Like, I really yeah. thought he'd said something deranged. Egregious, uh, yeah. And of course, one thing I will not do, because, you know, I think the left should be better than the right. <laughs> I'm not going to, every time Biden slips up, say, well, what about Trump? But it is awfully rich to see some of these conservatives get on their high horse about like the necessity of down to the most precise detail, utter factuality, truthfulness, and honesty about every single thing. I mean, <laughs> it's just amazing to see. And again, I'm not going to give Biden a pass like they gave Trump a pass. I'm just saying the way Biden's <laughs> misstatements figured into this. I mean, I, there are people I know, people I follow, people I consider friends even who, who have actually said I just can't get behind Biden because he lies too much. These are people who supported Trump. <laughs> I mean, even when you think about the fact that these laws are being passed on the basis of a deranged yeah. lie that Trump actually yeah. won, a land, not just a, he not only just won, Sam, he won a landslide victory that was stolen from yeah. him. That's the basis yeah. for all this. Yeah. And they're upset that Biden got something wrong about the voting hours, which was only, you know, one one part of the bill and not even <laughs> and frankly, not even the most important. The move they want to make is to say that uh, during the Trump administration, the media jumped down his throat about every single thing that he got wrong. And in this case, they're giving him a pass. But of course, that's belied by the fact that, as you point out, it was Daniel Dale, the guy who was Mr. Trump fact checker, who pointed out that Biden got this thing wrong. You know, like I had my critiques of the media during Trump's, the liberal media during Trump's administration. I, th I think it was a little bit deranged at certain times. And I am often frustrated by the past that Biden gets about certain stuff that he shouldn't. But in this case, we're talking about a situation where he got a fact wrong and a liberal me representative of the liberal mainstream media corrected him. <laughs> uh, yes. It's not actually like a, a, an example of a double standard. Yes. And uh, what was so interesting about this is that I pulled up the CNN fact check and that was what Biden got wrong. But then Dale goes on to fact check Brian Kemp, the governor of uh -huh. Georgia, who told more falsehoods about the bill than Biden did. Right, 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 right. But the point is just that, first of all, I think the bill is actually quite complicated. It is, it's not a very well written bill. It's kind of hard to understand. I mean, I've, because shithead right wingers will say, well, did you read the bill? I have. And, 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 it's, and, it, it, and, and it's, you know, to my untrained eye, parts of it were ambiguous to me. Or like I would have needed someone really schooled in election law to fully tease Explain out its implications it. for yeah. me. But right. all this is to say the combination of Biden's dreadful lies and then moving the baseball game from the Major League Baseball All-Star game from Atlanta has just fed into the right wing culture wars. And well, it's cancel culture. It's cancel yes, culture, Matt. Exactly. Exactly. They're canceling. I don't know. Wait, what are they can't they canceling the All-Star game or, or MLB is canceling Georgia? I'm not exactly sure where <laughs> yeah. the Yeah. Who is being canceled by whom? I'm not exactly clear, but it's definitely cancel culture one yes. way or another. It has uh, the whiff of cancel culture to me. And so because it's Major League Baseball and they're moving the All-Star game was reminiscent of some of what major corporations, movie studios, etc., did in the wake of anti-trans legislation the past few years, right? Yeah. One of these bills would be passed and then a corporation would signal some kind of, you know, uh, they wouldn't do business in that state or they'd limit business in yeah. that state, whatever. Uh, but our old friend Josh Hawley, of course, seized on this baseball debacle. Mm -hmm. I think partly, you know, like he exposed himself politically in the sense of really going all in on Trump's big lie, right? Yeah. So I think he's felt some of that pressure. And, you know, it's he's kind of turned to offense. And he said he, he actually went on Fox News. I'll just read it. This is what he said. What's happening in Georgia is what they tried to do to those of us who stood up for election integrity back in January. Anyone uh -huh. who has said that our elections need to be free, they need to be fair, we need to consider election reform. They try to cancel you. 
And now the woke corporations are trying to do the same thing to Georgia. So there's your answer, Sam. It's a whole state <laughs> oh, there being you go. canceled. I got, I got it. I got it. I got uh, it. Yeah. And they're going to try to do it to anybody, any state, any person who stands up for election integrity. When it comes to these corporations, they've gotten big and powerful because government has helped them, because government has subsidized them, because government has looked the other way, and it's time to bust them up. Sure. He tweeted April 7th. MLB and the giant woke corporations keep telling Biden's big lie <laughs> about Georgia and election integrity. They want to run this country. They've been coddled by government too long. We need to bust them up. Starting next week, I'll introduce a trust-busting agenda for the 21st century. Uh, in addition to that, one of the things I've, I've seen bandied about is that Major League Baseball actually is a monopoly. Yeah. And it's a monopoly that's kind of allowed by law. They're exempt from certain antitrust or you know, monopoly yeah. uh, regulations because they're like the professional baseball league in the United States. Right. So um, uh, Republicans have threatened to remove that exemption. Yeah, but there's an extent to which I'm all for this because the MLB's monopoly exemption is what allows them to collude with the cable companies to block out the fucking Mets games when I want to watch them on MLB TV. I know. It, says, it doesn't count. It doesn't count as collusion because they have these exemptions in antitrust law. But it absolutely is. And uh, if Josh Hawley wants to make it so I can watch Mets games on the internet, then go for it. Just as I always <laughs> say about Josh Hall, if he wants to like actually empower the working class in America, then go for it, Josh. If you want to break up fucking Facebook or Twitter or whatever else, go for it. I just had to say too, Sam, that it's like, sure, remove that exemption. It seems like the main consequences would be, as you're pointing out, better television coverage of teams I want to watch. Like yeah. you, I'm a subscriber to Major League Baseball TV. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, just this afternoon, there was a Yankees game I was going to check the score on, and I couldn't because it was blacked out. Now, yeah. if he wants to change that, fine. But it's also kind of laughable because it's like, yeah, I'm sure like a rival, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a, like, like a rival, like the free market will take over, and a rival to Major League Baseball will, you know, drive them out of business. Yeah, good luck with that, Republicans. Yeah, you don't have any confidence in the Florida peanut league or whatever the other <laughs> the competing <laughs> the competing non-professional baseball leagues are I mean, I mean it's actually kind of interesting rhetorically right because what he's doing is he's basically saying if you don't like what major league baseball did to georgia which i don't know what the polling is on it but that stands to be more popular than a lot of things republicans believe yeah. like you like you could imagine a certain like Ordinary Joe being like, yeah, what the hell? Leave it in Atlanta. Some number of bus small business owners who stood to benefit from the game being there. Right. Or just like people in general not loving corporations getting political. Right. Yeah. Like, I think that's a common sentiment. But anyways, you can see that that possibly more popular issue, tying it then to Trump's lie that he actually had the election stolen from him. Yeah, right. Yeah, so it's kind yeah. of like trying to line people up all on one side of uh, like a divide. Right. So yeah, if, you, if yeah. you don't like what Major League Baseball did to the All-Star game, you're on the side of those of us who know election integrity is important, who also know that Trump had the election stolen from him. Yeah. Right. That's no, it's true. I just think it's interesting because I think it could be somewhat effective. But I'm just saying I think there's probably more people in the United States who didn't really care whether the All-Star game was in Atlanta or not than who actually thought Trump had uh, a landslide election stolen from him. Well, look, it's definitely their calculation that people are more exercised about cancel culture than they are about, like, the other parts of the platform, the Republican Party. Uh -huh, right? Like, totally. this, this is kind of the thing that's so incredible about this moment. The Republicans seem to have no policy agenda absent <laughs> uh -huh. voter suppression, cancel culture and anti-trans legislation at the state level yep that's it i mean and, and obstruction of whatever the democrats are trying to do right like whatever kind of economic benefit the democrats are trying to provide to americans they're going to vote against every single bill that biden tries to pass by reconciliation the point is that like it's certainly their calculation whether or not it's right just moving the target into a culture war space, a space of it being about like, you know, overweening libs trying to take over baseball or whatever <laughs> else is going to be a winning strategy, whereas other things will not. And I think there's an extent to which the same thing is true of the basic fixation on anti-trans legislation at the state level across the country. Um, uh -huh. I mean, I think that 
the motivation is deeply rooted in transphobia and bigotry of the conservative movement right now. But it's also uh-huh. the preoccupation with it is about distracting from the fact that they have literally no agenda of any kind yeah. to serve the material needs of the American public right now. All they can do is excite the conservative anxieties about changing culture and losing a sense of comfort with the norms of the country and blah, 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 blah. Uh And and of course, like as we have talked about with our our friends that you're wrong about, like exciting kind of uh, bullshit moral panic about protecting the children and blah, blah, blah. It's just going back to the Mm -hmm. trough of, of culture war bullshit, which has profoundly damaging effects on the lives of many, many people. It's sick. It's terrible. Yeah. But what they were doing by focusing on it to the exclusion of anything else is just revealing the extent to which they have nothing to provide. They have no policy agenda. I mean, I don't think I've ever, of course, during the Obama years, the whole Republican agenda was obstruction of the Obama agenda. But there was some ideological substance behind it. Like, they, they no longer really have the, like, anti-government freedom kind of right. shit. The resistance to Obama, as bullshit as it was, and I have my suspicions about its origins in certain <laughs> yeah. dynamics, but y- there was a sense in which it, it you know, could be wrapped plausibly. in the... I- it, yeah, plausibly wrapped in a kind of Tea Party I- ideology of small government, right? Yeah. There was some ideological coherence to it, maybe, um, in a way that doesn't seem to be at work right now. And and I just want to say about the trans issues, you know, I mean, first of all, there really is something sick about targeting trans people this way. Trans kids. Trans kids. I mean, all trans people, of course, but trans kids in particular. Yes. There's something just sick about it, in part because, I I want to be careful how I put it, but it's it's a small population. It is a small population. So so there's, it's all bullshit, But it seems even worse when you're talking about such a small minority of people, right? Yes. Like, the, I mean, it just turns my stomach because it just seems so grounded it's in... Fucking mean and cruel. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. But, you know, it even connects to some of what we've been talking about because one of the most odious of these bills passed in Arkansas, right? Yeah. And that one, I think, denied any gender-affirming health care to trans people, what, under the age of 18? Yeah. Now, here's the thing. That was passed by the Arkansas state legislature. It was vetoed by the Republican governor. Right. However, his veto was overridden. In part, I this is something I learned, it goes back to Jim Crow South legislation as well because huh. they, they feared that somehow, like, a progressive might be elected governor of one of these states. Uh-huh. And so they, in a state like Arkansas, it's unusually easy, easy to override the governor's uh, oh, veto, wow. which I think in the case of Arkansas only takes a bare majority of the state what? house, <laughs> a bare majority of the state house. So, so basically Asa Hutchinson vetoed that legislation and then the state house just uh, on a simple majority vote overrode it. So uh, even even some of these trans bills, anti-trans bills, you know, they're yes. able to be implemented because of structures put in place. The, you know, anti, it, the it, anti-democratic legacy of the Republican Party, and, or yes. not the Republican Party necessarily, but conservatives. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it goes back, of course, you know, to race, Jim Crow, segregation, yeah. voter disenfranchisement. It's It's yeah. kind of all in the mix. It is fascinating, Sam, because it's, I mean, one of the things that struck me during, say, the debates over the American Rescue Plan the recently passed big Biden uh, stimulus relief pandemic bill was, as you're saying, that, that they just, the Republicans barely had anything to offer as a counter. I mean, certain senators maybe had their own plans, you know, the, uh, but as, a, as like a party message, it wasn't clear what they were offering as an alternative or what they're doing, period, right now. And as you're saying, it seems to be just all in on the culture war, in a way that the culture war subsumes everything in it, right? And we've talked about this before, but it, it kind of means like we're no longer talking about, say, the specifics of why Trump did not have the election stolen from him. We're not talking about the specifics even of some of these voting bills, uh, like in Georgia. Like it all gets wrapped up, subsumed into the culture war, and you're on one side of it or another. And I, I think that's, you know, I don't know how effective it will be, but it is this way as I kind of 
mentioned earlier of taking the specifics of any particular issue, rendering it irrelevant, <laughs> and just drawing a line in the sand and saying, which side of this line are you going to stand on? Yeah. You know, that's what they're offering. And it's scary because it has, because they will find the culture war issues that they decide sort of serve the kind of vicious, affective, <laughs> um, domineering kind of cruel desires of their yeah. loudest base. And uh-huh. then whoever is the scapegoat who should be served up to serve those needs will be served up. And at the moment it's <laughs> trans kids. Yeah. Um, and that has profoundly damaging impact for the people who are the targets of it. Um, yeah. And at the same time, it really is, I think, an indication of the degree to which the sort of political and ideological infrastructure of the conservative movement is in utter disarray. I mean, Mm -hmm. whether or not that matters electorally or not, I don't know. But as a factual matter, they they have nothing to stand on except for basically these kind of vicious instincts, their efforts to justify Trump's loss and their efforts to um, reshape the electorate in a way that would allow them to continue to hold power. Um, yes. None of that amounts to a political agenda that meets the basic needs of an American public, which is coming out of an, <laughs> a whole year of like uh-huh. deeply traumatizing, difficult struggle against uh-huh. economic and public health crises. <laughs> and, and, and in response to that, the Republicans have nothing to say, nothing uh-huh. to offer. Biden's efforts to pass a bill to make people whole as a result of those crises, 100% of them voted against it, right? Like, yes. I mean, the only way in which they have decided that they can meet the emotional and psychic needs of their base is by joining in the demonization of easily marginalized others um, who seem to pose some kind of threat to their self-concept and their concept of of, of normalcy. Um, But I I think it's a thin, 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 thin ideological scaffolding. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, not that it won't work, but it's, but it's, it's nothing. It's offensive. (laughs) Yeah. They're not even on the same page in culture war terms in the sense of, so there's Josh Hawley threatening to uh, propose legislation to break up woke corporations. So that's more of the class war is culture war, right? The woke part of woke capital, as we've emphasized in the show. But then you have like Ted Cruz on safari on the Texas border, right? Like churning out these videos where he's like pointing at, you know, a rusted wall or in the bush kind of showing where migrants, you know, cross the river to get into the United yeah. States or whatever. Yeah. Well, we didn't even talk about that. Of course, obviously immigration is the other, the right. other distraction. Right. But you know, so it's just, they're kind of all over the place and it's like not clear to me who's with Josh Hawley in the Senate, right? Like what's the Hawley no, caucus? Yeah. So it's, it's really pathetic. Um, but I think it's going to get worse because we see, I mean, you don't want to give these people any credit at all and I'm not. But I do think, say, a Republican Senate caucus that swaps out Rob Portman and Pat Toomey for two people more in the mold of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert or you know, whatever the Trumpy, well, in the case of Ohio, maybe J.D. Vance. Matt, we're going to have to do a J.D. Vance episode. <laughs> I know. I know. But anyways, I'm just saying, you know, I think it's going to get worse. This is clearly what their play is. And, you know, uh, maybe to close on anything hopeful or optimistic because it's not clear this will pass but the antidote to everything we've been talking about or a key part of pushing back against it would be for the senate to pass the legislation that's already passed the house that democrats have passed hr1 the basically the voting bill that would yeah at the federal level establish minimal standards of fair and free elections yeah and very importantly it would override many of the pieces of legislation now being considered because it fully restores the Voting Rights Act, among other right. things. So it would mean that some of this legislation we've been talking about is is you know rendered null. But also it requires House districts to be drawn by like independent commissions rather than the state legislators. So it's kind of a way an anti gerrymandering bill too, which is hugely important. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It'll it'll take overturning the filibuster 
which we can say to our listeners, we'll have more to say about uh, in the future. Yes. When right now it's it that seems really dicey. Um, it seems like some of the mansion. possible yeah mansion seems to have backed <laughs> away. Mansion seems to have backed away from some of the more promising or at least ambiguous comments he made previously. Yeah. But that's what we need to do. We need to pass. I mean, I think of all the legislation you know that could be passed uh, in this hopefully two-year window. I was having lunch today with a uh, actually a listener of the show who's a law student at Columbia, and we were talking about this some. And you know the way the conversation we started talking about Stephen Breyer, and I said, you know, Breyer needs to retire for the obvious reasons, but it's not just his health. I mean. How many Democratic senators are quite old? Yeah, you know, and how many of them are in states where their replacement would be appointed by a Republican? A number of right. them. The Democrats' control of the Senate is—I mean, I don't need to say it, but extremely narrow and extremely precarious. There seems to be this two-year window, and I think of all the things they could do: passing in the Senate the, the legislation that's already passed the House, HR one. That's just—it's one of the three or four key essential things the Biden administration could get done. It's also notable that, you know, if you if if, if our listeners are as- ascribed to the um, David Shore theory of Democratic Party politics, um, one of the things that's interesting in, in his assessment of where the party is and what they ought to do is that using this time to pass these sort of structural voting rights reforms is a very good use of their time, specifically because if the if the Republicans are preoccupied in their 2022 message with voting, it's not that Republicans necessarily like support voting rights, though they do more probably than the party. It's that people actually don't care that much about it. Like people don't care that much about um, structural reforms to the nature oh, of our electoral system. Right, yeah. And so if Republicans are spending their 2022 message just harping on the fact that Democrats reinstated the Voting Rights Act, it's a waste of their message. Like it's a bad yes. use of their time. It doesn't activate the point. right partisans. And so obviously from a partisan perspective, it's worth passing this because it's the only way the Democrats are going to continue to hold power in fucking this country, this minoritarian country, but also for narrowly for the interests of 2022, if they get Republicans talking about electoral reform instead of any number of other things they might do, it won't motivate their base nearly as much. That's a smart point. I hadn't thought about it that way before. David Shore, man. He's really annoying (laughs) in some ways, but he's right about a lot of stuff. Yes. And, you know, I just want to, as we close out, I mean, this was a topic we just wanted to, since it's kind of fresh, we wanted to dive into it. These bills are bad. Don't believe the Republican propaganda. They might not be as bad as some of what was proposed, but that doesn't mean they're not harmful. They are. And I just, I mean, come on. The the fact that these are based on the premise that the 2020 election was (laughs) littered with fraud, wrongdoing, stolen ballots, trashed ballots, ballots conjured from nowhere, voting machines with parts that were switched out. The conspiracy theories you have to believe to actually think Trump genuinely won, they're nonsensical. I mean, they're, they're, you know, no intelligent person should believe them. And the fact that that seems to be driving all this, at some level, I mean, obviously the, the direct material harms that will be caused by everything we've talked about are the main yeah. concern. But when you push deeper... The fact that it's all based on this deranged conspiracy theory is extremely un- unsettling. Yes, I, agree. I mean I don't know. I, I, there's not even commentary I can really provide other than to say, as I as I was thinking about all these matters, uh, preparing for this episode, it's I kept coming back to that. The reason for any of this is the lie that Trump actually won and had the election stolen from him. Yep. So that's yep. where we're at. Yep. Well, that was the app. Yes. Uh, I was glad we got to tie it into some of our frustrations with Major League Baseball television. Um, <laughs> if that is one consequence of Josh Hawley's legislation, maybe it won't all be for, for not. But uh, I have a feeling, you know, anything constructive and useful that might be done about corporations will not be done by Josh Hawley, upset that they're too woke. I'm sure not. That being said, we should do um, a baseball and conservatism episode at some point soon. Hey, I'm down. I just in preparation. I bought George Wills's book, so Men I at have Work. It somewhere I have it. Yeah. All right. Thank you, listeners. Thanks, yes. Matt. Yes. Thank you, Sam. Uh, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.